You may or may not be aware that the sermons are recorded, posted to our website and to our app each week. And I only mention that this morning because really this is sermon one in a series of sermons. And last week was the introduction to the series. So if you happen to be required providentially to miss over the next seven weeks, I would encourage you to go back and find the missing piece in the sequence because they are all going to hang together and build on one another. Not that the individual sermons won't have application, but it will make more sense as a whole than as individuals. So we talked last week about uh, John's message that the axe was already at the root of the tree and that every tree that didn't bear fruit was in danger of being cut down and tossed into the fire. That the measure of our usefulness was our fruitfulness, that we should take that seriously. And if fruitfulness is the measure of our lives, and if fruitfulness flows from the character of our hearts, which means human hearts shaped, influenced, and inspired by the Holy Spirit who is resident in those hearts, then the process of tending the source of fruitfulness is critically important to our discussion. So what's the source of our fruitfulness again? It is a heart that is shaped, influenced, inspired, and accompanied by the Holy Spirit. That is the source of our fruitfulness. In other words, when it comes to Christianity, what matters is what is on the inside. It's inside that counts. That is different from what we often think or believe. We're very concerned about how we appear on the outside, especially about how we appear to others. We want to, we want to act better, thinking that if our, our actions are better, we will be better people. So we create resolutions. We're going to stop doing this. We're going to start doing that. Well, there is certainly some benefit to those kinds of plans, but overall, they're relatively doomed to failure. They've sort of become a national joke, haven't they? Because our internal patterns of thinking about the reasons we act the way we do haven't changed. If the internal thinking doesn't change, what comes from that thinking isn't going to change either. If my goal is to start treating my mother-in-law with more patience... I will never really be able to do that until my thinking about my mother-in-law changes internally. As long as I am frustrated with, annoyed with, irritated with, offended by, defensive with my mother-in-law, well then my mounting emotions will always eventually get the best of me. However, once the internal opinion and attitude changes, the change in the way I respond within that relationship will happen more naturally. So if I, if I attend to the internal thought life about my mother-in-law, then the actions will follow. Are you saying, Pastor Dan, that the Holy Spirit will make my mother-in-law less offensive? I don't know exactly. But this I do know. The Holy Spirit can give us an understanding and an appreciation of almost anyone. 
And short of that, the Holy Spirit is able to help us to begin to empathize with or maybe pity some folks, which will enable us, by His grace, to treat people well, to act in their best interests, and at a minimum, pray for people we would rather avoid and perhaps even dislike intensely. So then where do you start on the journey of this kind of transformation? You always start internally with the current condition of your heart. What is the condition of your heart? What is necessary when it comes to transformation? What is possible? Perhaps, perhaps even before we speak in terms of the condition of our hearts, which is a byproduct of our relationship with the Holy Spirit, we should talk about a more general goal that is established by Jesus for all of his children. One of the important lessons of the Garden of Eden story in the book of Genesis is it sets out in very visual pictures what God hoped for us. What did God hope for when he created us? God hoped for fellowship. He wanted to talk with us, interact with us, have a relationship with us. He wanted to include us in the richness of his fellowship and relationship within the Trinity. But we ruined much of this. As soon as humanity eats from the tree of knowledge, as soon as those two take a bite of that apple, what's the first thing they do? They start to hide from God. Before that time, when they're not self-absorbed, they freely interact with God. After that time, they are hiding from God. And we have been hiding ever since. God longs for reconciliation with his creation ever since. And this is how Jesus puts it in the Gospel of John. This is a major goal for humanity as articulated by Jesus. This is John 17, 3. Now this is eternal life. This is what I want from you forever. That, you, that they, and this is Jesus praying for us, that they will know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And when the scripture writer uses the word, they will know you, he's not using the word know in the sense of information. He's talking about an intimate experiential knowledge, a growing and continuing knowledge of God. He's talking about companionship, fellowship, interaction. We are designed for interaction with the Creator God. It is the intention of God that you have an experiential relationship with Him and that this relationship is the thing that guides you and directs you through life so that you can fulfill your purpose. Everything you need in order to thrive in life is provided for you in the context of that relationship. Everything we need is in that relationship. So how do we get this guidance from the Holy Spirit? How do we interact? How do we, how do we prosecute this relationship with with Jesus. Well, 
Guidance from the Holy Spirit internally is provided in three fundamental ways to all believers. The first way is the active work of the Holy Spirit. We know that the Holy Spirit is given as a down payment on all the promises that God has made to us. It's a guarantee that everything he promised will happen. And so the Holy Spirit comes into our heart when we're saved. This is what Ephesians 1 and 13 says. In him you also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, in him you also were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance toward redemption as God's own people to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is given to us. It's God's gift. It's his seal. It's his guarantee. When you give your life to Christ, he's present. He's the agent of our salvation. He's given to us. He guides us from that moment. The second thing that God uses to guide his people, believers, everywhere, in every age and all time, is the sharp-edged sword of God's word, the sword of the Spirit. The word of God, the Bible, and especially the Gospels are a road map for Christian behavior. Romans 15.4 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, so that by steadfastness and by encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. 2 Timothy 3 says, all scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient. Did you catch that? Everyone who belongs to God can be proficient, equipped for every good work. So the scripture is given to us not so that we can be right in our opinions, did you catch what Tim was said in Timothy? It was given to us so that we can be proficient, equipped for every good work. Do you catch how that catches in? Not so that we can be right, so that we can be fruitful. That's why we have the Scripture. The Scripture guides us in fruitfulness. There's a third great, great gift we are given to guide us, and that is what we confess in the creed the few times a year we say it, the communion of the saints, the wonderful communion of the saints. That's the third guidance given to all Christians. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. Galatians 5.13 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Galatians 6 says, my friends, if anyone is detected in a transgression, you who have received the Spirit, so this is the Spirit-guided process, should restore such one in a spirit of gentleness. Take care that you yourselves are not tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. This is how life is supposed to work. This is the design of God. Life lived in fellowship with God, instructed by the Spirit, in fellowship with the saints of God, that together we can be fruitful. This is how God guides us. Unfortunately, 
There's a conflict from the very, very beginning of our lives. The conflict is we're still hiding. Just like Adam and Eve, we're still hiding from God. And as we grow older, our desire for independence deepens. We would rather direct our own steps than allow God to lead us or guide us. Some of us maintain this independent stubbornness to do our own thing even after we're Christian. And so there's going to be a conflict in us. If we're going to be guided by the Spirit and we're going to demand our own way, I'm trying to think of a word picture that deals with that kind of ambivalence. I mean, how do you, how do you follow the Scripture and do your own thing? I mean, we are really enamored of doing our own thing, aren't we? I mean, we want to do our own thing. We want to be independent. We want to set our own goals. We believe our lives are our own and that we have the right, practically the obligation, to spend them how we choose. We love to sing with Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. I mean, that's us. That's who we are. We forget that we're created beings. When we turn from God in this way, our goals become warped. Life without God is built on the ideas of comfort, of security, of pleasure. We attempt to get as much of these commodities as we can. And at a very simple level, this is the pursuit of sensuality, that which pleases the senses. I want what gives me pleasure or comfort or security. But the problem with the pursuit of pleasure is in the end, it never, ever satisfies. Sensuality is never satisfied. The very act of fulfilling it results in the lessening of satisfaction so that greater levels of pleasure are always pursued. More becomes my motto. When my goal in life is self-satisfaction or self-gratification, I eventually find myself pushing limits seeking to find pleasure at the expense of others, and it is just a short step from there to the step where I can rationalize almost anything and nothing is forbidden at all. And if we're candid, we have to admit our whole society conspires to convince us that if no one is getting hurt, whether that's actually true or not, then adults should be able to do whatever they want to give them pleasure. That's where sensuality takes us. And so we end up in this really odd place. Free to pursue whatever we want, we don't know anymore what's best to pursue. We don't know anymore what will make us happy in the long term. And we don't know anymore what will be meaningful at the end of our lives. We just want what we want now. And we lose our way. Rather than asking ourselves the question, why we would do a certain thing, we ask a different question. Why not do a certain thing? Do you see the difference between those two? Why wonders whether something is worth doing if it is for the best? Why not wonders, is there any harm as opposed to is there any good? Is there some hidden pleasure in this is the why not question. And when my focus in living is completely absorbed with gathering pleasure, avoiding difficulty or limitations, 
securing personal comfort, I have arrived at a very dangerous place. I have arrived at a me-centered life. I tend to think that anyone who brags of being a self-made man has a fool for an architect. I don't know who said that, but I believe it's true. Humility requires us to understand that we are in a place created by God for us, that he has made room for us in creation, and that he has, he has endowed us with abilities and faculties that enable the kind of life we have here. And then, and even this is only possible by God's revelation, we have an opportunity to increase in the knowledge and love of God. Or alternately, increase in the knowledge and love of self. Those are the two opportunities that we have. Those are the two paths that are for us. The process of growing naturally includes a growing knowledge of self. For this is the maturing process that every human must experience. And we must decide then, in this process of growing, whether we will grow in the knowledge of God or we will become more and more self-absorbed growing in the knowledge of self. And so, here's the primary question. In living in a world permeated by God and the knowledge of God, is it our desire to increase in the knowledge of God? Do we, and when I say knowledge, not information again, relationally, do I want to increase in my interactions with God and in the fellowship that God desires for me, or will I walk my own way? And here's the danger. If we're not really interested in pursuing a knowledge of God, God's not going to force us to do it. If we don't want to be in his presence, he will excuse us from his presence. And when that happens, we can be assured that we will become more and more and more self-absorbed and self-centered, more engaged in self-worship to the point that we will not want God at all. And I think, and this is something that Dallard Willard tells us, that's the definition of a ruined soul. A ruined soul, according to Willard, isn't someone who believes incorrectly about theology. It's not someone who gives the wrong answer at the end of their life to the questions that St. Peter's going to ask. A ruined soul is someone who misses heaven by a constant effort to avoid and escape God. I, I'm pretty convinced that God doesn't send anyone to hell. But I also believe he doesn't force people who have spent their whole life avoiding him to come and live with him once his earthly life is over. He doesn't twist our arms one way or the other. He's made it possible for our hearts to be transformed. He's made room for us in creation. He's expressed his love for us in countless ways. He invites us in. He makes the transformation of our hearts possible. And we have to decide where we're going to go, whether we're going to embrace this transformation of heart or not, or go our own way. 
There are some pictures in Scripture, I think, that help us. This is Ezekiel 36 and 25. God, through the prophet, is speaking. I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. A new heart I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. The ruined soul is the soul whose heart has turned to stone by avoiding God and pursuing self. But God offers a way back, heart transplant, if you will. And I believe that our conversion, our conversion, our response to God's gracious offer of salvation is that heart transplant. Stone is replaced with flesh. We're back at square one again. We have no need to hide from God anymore. We have an opportunity to pursue God again. Our relationship is restored. When I was online this week, I found this advice on a national hospital's website discussing aftercare after heart transplant. Okay, this is what it says. Life after heart transplant. Recovery after transplant can be a challenge. Getting the most from your new heart and ensuring quality of life requires a strong commitment. And I said amen to that. Fortunately for us, post-operative care is in the hands of the Holy Spirit. But we must still engage the scriptures and the communion of saints. Both are necessary for us to establish a new way of living. When Paul prays for the church in Ephesus, these are his words. I pray that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. The aftercare procedure is being rooted and grounded in love. Just like repotting a plant requires attention to the roots, so building a new life after a heart transplant requires being rooted and grounded in love. Paul's prayer continues. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints. Notice this is done in the company of the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with the fullness of God. It is God in us that makes the changes in our behavior. We must become absorbed in the life of God. Our life in God has the power to transform our thinking, our goals, our desires. And when all of that happens, when the internal transformation happens, degree by degree, then our actions change. This is the journey we're undertaking. This is what we're going to be talking about when we talk about the transformation of the heart. We're talking about how this journey 
changes. How our actions change because of what has changed in our heart. But the first step on any road in terms of development of the character of Christ is heart transformation. And so it seems it makes sense this morning to pause for a moment at the beginning of this long conversation and give you opportunity to make sure that the heart transplant has happened, that you've invited Christ to invade your life, that you have yielded your heart to the Holy Spirit, that you have stated your intention to walk with the Spirit so that you can know his transforming grace in your heart. Because without your cooperation, we're going nowhere. As long as we are still moving towards separate directions, we're going nowhere. And so to reestablish that fundamental commitment saying, Lord, I am committed to walking your way. Forgive me for the things I've done wrong. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray and sing that chorus together. And you may want to take these moments in the quietness of your own heart to recommit, to reestablish, if necessary, to ask for a new heart that can be shaped and molded and guided by the Spirit. Heavenly Father, we stand before you as your children, grateful for the opportunities you bring to us. And we ask that this day and each day, our hearts will be open before us, that you would guide us by your spirit, by your word, by the fellowship we have with other saints, that our lives might be fruitful, meaningful, purposeful, according to your design for us. Help us to that end, we pray. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit.
May your lives be fruitful for the sake of the kingdom. And may the glory of God reflect in your faces this day and every day. Amen. Go in peace.